A good Wednesday to you and welcome to today's edition of Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson with you alongside our technical producer, Samuel G. Brooks. Way to just hit the end of the song there. Yeah. Because we totally planned that, didn't we? Yeah. Well, yeah. How, what, do you, what do you mean? You, you just think because I said your name when the song ends, you think that was it? Is it? Is, no, I mean like that was you... a very That was a very like sort of introspective interpretation of my timing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it has nothing to do with me. It's that, you know, we have the music going. We're hanging out in here. You're getting your papers ready. I love and it. And then we like we throw the camera on you and you throw your headphones on. And just like when you went into your intro, we we're just in the, the yeah. denouement of I'm the song. A, the great. denouement. I'm yeah. doing a I'm doing it. We're doing a show that's kind of themed. We're going to be talking a lot about Alberta's uh, draft curriculum, the proposed curriculum that, w- that was released by the government, the K to six social studies curriculum that we got into yesterday. And because so many people are talking, it's sort of like a trip back to the 50s. Um, you said I'm getting all my papers ready. We just we just so we're typing everything up on typewriters today. We're going to be old. We're going to be smoking cigarettes through the course of the interviews. It's going to be great. Mm, say, oh, coming up in today's news, it'll you're be going to the, get yourself a hat with a little press card. Inside that's of it. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, See, we, we got to get some of that going. We missed out on that. Although I was going to say, I mean, with regards to style, um, I, I, I'm sort of like easing more into more casual and you're here looking unbelievable this morning oh, in oh, a oh, three well, I mean, thank piece you. Um, or a two piece two, minus the coat. Yeah, I, well, I just like, I, I was talking to a friend of the show, Chris Sterwald about this the other day. Um, him and I both agree. I can't wear a vest without a tie. I can't do the open collar vest. It just doesn't feel right to me. Some people can. You do it all the time. You do it spectacularly all the be, time. You need to have somebody yeah. push you, uh, to, to branch out. You know, if you, 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 you don't think you can pull it off, but I guarantee you could pull it off. You That's just fair. need to pull it off. All right. Like what if you were just to undo your tie right now and take it off? Make sure you take the Uncle Sam cam if you're going to like you have like, mixed like feelings. Seriously, we're doing this. Okay. Why wouldn't you do this? And, you All know, right, casual then, Wednesday. Here can you imagine everybody after Sam tied a bow tie the other day with no mirror? If all of a sudden this was revealed to be the clip on. <laughs> See? <laughs> Right now and now, then very, and then, very much a real time. And then do you want to roll up your sleeves? Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Get the get the real cash going. Right. Yeah. See now this is how you're gonna get your own and see, like now we get to see your ink. Now we get to learn new things about look at that. Is that a specific mountain range? That's pyramid in Jasper. Pyramid Mountain. I mean, it, you you like me growing up in Alberta. I'm sure you have a, a real affinity for the Rockies around here. And uh, I, I just I, I picked that one because when I lived outside of uh, outside of Edmonton, outside of Alberta, the proximity to the mountains is probably the thing that I miss the most. And just you know, it, it's it's iconic. You can see it from everywhere in Jasper. I think you look better with rolled up sleeves and your collar popped. Okay, well, what? do you feel more? Do you feel ready to sort of like hit today's show head on now? I, I mean, I am a fan. Of the, you know, if you're midway through a task and you're you kind of need a little refresh, you just pop your collar and, and roll up your sleeves and then hunch down on the desk and be like, all right, there we're going to go. get into you're this. You're ready to go. It's yeah. the Jack Layton. That's what they would call it. It's the Jack Layton. <laughs> Although every politician tries to pull it off. I have a great picture of me interviewing the current prime minister and and he's he's I'm wearing like a suit and tie and I'm like like kind of leaning in in the traditional radio studio and he's there and he's got his sleeves rolled up. He's, he's got a his big fan off. of the open collar rolled yeah. up sleeves. Well, it sends a message yeah. to people. So so I think that's why politicians like it. Okay, so that's enough messing around. That's enough positivity for one day. Shall we get into the hellfire that is everybody's reality right now? I we have not received this many emails 
since the coal debacle. Uh, if you're tuning in from outside Alberta, you probably still know the story about how Alberta's government was was easing uh, coal. Pol- they, were, they were trashing coal policies that were like 50 years old uh, to do some favors to a few people until Albertans rose up en masse. Uh, with with placards and letters and emails and phone calls and lawn signs and the government walked it back. And the time that we got emails even comparable to coal was Aloha Gate, which if, if you're listening from outside Alberta, that's when the Alberta government uh, told everybody to, to stay home and to not travel and to not see their families over the holidays. And then you know, senior ministers and chiefs of staff and principal secretaries or, you know, press secretaries, I should say, were, you know, uh, went all over the place to like MLAs, you know, to like Hawaii and Arizona and Mexico and, and every because they had done it for many years, said one of the ministers, Minister Allard. We, we've done it for 17 years as though nobody else had ever traveled with their families or had traditions to observe. Well, this because keep in mind, the show is only four months old. So these are kind of our mile markers. But but those are kind of the the, the Aloha gate, the uh, coal and then now Alberta's curriculum. These are the three that are sort of for us really sticking out as 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 when our inbox gets just slammed and so we have guests coming up today we've got uh author and and coach chris clearfield that's coming up in a few minutes um we've got uh dr lorian hardcastle is going to give us uh a few minutes of her time out of the university of calgary to talk about alberta's doctors voting no uh to a new agreement with the alberta government and and then we're going to talk to sarah austin i'm really looking forward to this she's the founder she's the ceo of children first canada and we're going to get into some of the work that they're doing, better understanding the impact of the pandemic and some of the lockdowns or slowdowns or easings or cancellations on kids. And I know that that is all over everybody's radar. If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a grandparent, that's something you're, if you're a kid, you know, we heard from, I'm not going to call them kids, they're young adults, but how cool was it the other day? Yesterday, we read an email from from a grade 11 student who said, real talk, I listen with my mom every single day. It's like our go-to daily thing we do together. It's incredible. So we know that young people are invested in this show as well. We're going to get to a ton of your emails today. I promise you that. As a matter of fact, we're going to miss dozens of them, and I apologize for that because so many of you have been in touch, and, and you're doing what we asked you to do, which is CC us talk at ryanjesperson.com on your emails to Alberta's education minister, to the premier, and to your MLAs. And (laughs) you're doing it because you know that they can be slippery. Like Lisa, Lisa wrote us uh, this email. As a matter of fact, she wrote it this morning at 619. Lisa was up early to get this off her chest. and And she writes to education minister Adriana LaGrange in bold, to be transparent, this email's been CC'd to various people to be sure that it's accounted for later when the government is asked about how many parents reached out. If you're wondering what that's all about, the premier of Alberta publicly stated that they had received seven emails complaining about the so-called Aloha gate. And of course, we knew that that was just absolutely untrue because we have hundreds of your emails. We are CC'd on them to Jason Kenney and his ministers. So We're going to hold the government accountable as a grassroots population. How's that? We figured out how we're going to do this. You keep us CC'd on all the emails. Lisa says, I'm a concerned parent who does not agree with these proposed changes to the curriculum, K to six. From where I stand, I see forced religion, nepotism, and racism as key learning topics. It's dangerous. 
Lisa says, I chose public school to avoid religious propaganda. I'm agnostic. My kids have a right to research various beliefs when they're ready. Choose what's right for them. But having somebody force them to learn religion? I don't know. She says, and plus, there's a whole slew of musical talent in Canada. This was like the comment. This is always at the end of every email. Sam, you saw that at the end. Nobody nobody thinks that Mark Kenny is worth really complaining about. Nobody thinks that maybe Mark Kenny didn't have a decent career in the 30s and 40s. But everybody throws it in at the end. Like Lisa, who says, making room for Mr. Kenny's grandfather in the history books is nepotism at its finest. I don't see why my kids should learn about your family, Premier, when my native history is being erased. That from Lisa. She says, I, I, I care deeply about the kids and the future of this province as a parent, as a constituent, and as a decent human being. That from Lisa. That's one example out of, I, you know, I mean, I, I would say like, you know, my, my email inbox is, is 50 emails at a time. Five or six pages yesterday, 250, yeah. 300 emails approximately I got, you, you in know, 12 hours. I'm someone who clears, I, I clear my inbox before I go to bed. Um, I, I try to get through emails so the next morning I've got a clean start with it and it doesn't always happen. And, and like this morning I woke up to about 30 emails yeah. and they just keep coming in. So we've, we're going to keep an eye on those. Um, Wally Bearhead, uh, an MBA, a PhD out of Alberta, uh, posted this Twitter thread and I wanted to share it with you all today. He says, so I've been reading through these curriculums that have been released. I'm, I'm not a curriculum expert or a teacher, but I do have some big concerns and worries. You know, hopefully somebody can explain to me the rationale for some of the choices made here to start. You know, there, there are very well educated and passionate people that I see posting about this curriculum, using their wisdom and their experience to review them. He says, I'm a parent, an uncle, a brother, a member of the Nakoda community. So that's my lens. And he says, I, I'd like to give some overarching feedback says the experts are going through the fine-tooth comb. To start, three generations going back in my family attended residential school, just one of many racist practices they've been forced to endure in their lives. Those that are alive now are relieved that our current and future generations don't have to go. This curriculum, though, my family told that when they went to school, they were forced to learn religion, essential skills for being a wife or a husband, what was considered basic skills to be a white Canadian. If this curriculum is anything... It's a return to residential school curriculum. It focuses on European histories, European superiority, what it feels you know, is important to life for Euro Canadians like capitalism. It says my nieces in grade one, they spend most of their time learning to read basic number skills. You know, they learn a bit about social studies, but they focus on reading and number skills. How can they do that with the social curriculum so big? And we got into that yesterday with, with Dwayne Donald and Carla Peck. Well, he says, my sister had a print copy of what was originally released in, 20, released in 2018. You know, since that version, math and science no longer include any indigenous knowledge. It's really hard to get our kids passionate about learning these as it is now because they won't see themselves in it. He says, I've also seen a lot of people reusing, recycling a quote from Chief Littlechild from a couple years back as though he currently endorses this curriculum. It's misrepresentation, says Dr. Bearhead, and I hope he's getting his legal papers in order because the government's using past words in present tense. I am sickened, he says, both as a Nakoda man, a parent, a person of color at the way non-white, non-Christian people are othered in this curriculum. It's disgraceful and it'll create further division, he says. And while I don't mind children learning about different religions and cultures to, to posit Christianity as so significant is a slap in the face to all of those who came before 
forced to pray in a language they didn't know after being ripped from their homes. And he goes on and it's worth checking out at Bearhead Wally. So social media is is on fire right now. AB curriculum is trending everywhere. I mean, there are other stories that are that are being absolutely virtually ignored, which which might be part of the plan. A lot of other stories aren't getting aren't seeing the light of day because of how wild this is. I mean, you've got an entire province, it seems, rallying against K to six social studies curriculum to paint a picture of where Alberta's at right now. Sam, let's get to some of the tweets we pulled. I want to show you some of the developments yesterday. I mean, like, what about this from Tamara? Who reached out and said, look at this. The new Alberta curriculum includes plagiarized passages directly from the Internet. What is what does she mean? She goes in to show. Here we go. Grade two, grade two social studies. The Silk Road derived its name from the lucrative trade in silk. I know you can read yourself if you're watching this on YouTube. Well, she Googled the first line of that and look at what she finds. It's the Wikipedia entry literally copied and pasted into Alberta curriculum. And then there's this tweet. This is this direction. I mean, this is something that's really worth paying attention to. Here's where you really know before this, Sam, I want to get to the one about religion and then we'll go into this. It kind of eases into this. It's oh, the one guy talking about religion. You know what? I'm sorry. I don't have the one. About you don't religion. have it. No, oh, I'm dang looking it. at my slack. Well, that's probably on yeah. me, buddy. That's oh, probably that's okay. on me. So I'll tell you what. Oh, let, let me read it for you. Sure. So this guy, his name's Alan. I got to show you this. So I'm going to find him. How am I going to find this? I can't do it. Anyway, I'll read his tweet. He says, you know, so much you can follow him at the airplane guy on Twitter. And he says so much about this whole thing bothers me. He says, but this one takes the cake because, you know, those newcomers are bringing weird stuff with them and it's so hard to accept them. And you're going to go, Alan, whoa, what he's quoting, what he's referencing is curriculum around religion under the knowledge Point. It says the religious affiliation of most Albertans is Christian and the largest denomination, although people will say Sam, that's they'll say that's technically true. And to say the largest denominations are Roman Catholic, United Anglican, Lutheran and Baptist. There's growing ethnic and religious diversity in the population. Now, when it comes to understanding freedom of religious practice is encouraged, but acceptance comes less easily in part because newcomers bring new and unfamiliar religious faiths and practices. And you go, well, that that kind of stinks. And I think that Dr. Carla Peck, who was with us on the show yesterday, probably felt the same way. So she was digging in. I mean, she did a deep dive. She took us through it yesterday. If you missed the show, make sure you check out that podcast or you can find it on YouTube. So she tweeted this yesterday. So here's where we have it. So she says, and look, she has the, the red lights flashing to get our attention. Unbelievable, she says. The government is, is changing aspects of the social studies curriculum they just released for feedback on Monday. Here's one example of how the print and online versions have been changed. Let's get into it. So here's what I just read to you. Freedom of religious practice is encouraged, but acceptance comes less easily, in part because newcomers bring new and unfamiliar religious faiths and practices, period. Well, it's been updated online now to include, but fear of the unknown can be no excuse for intolerance. Students will specifically study other faith traditions so that unfamiliar practices become respected and understood in a pluralistic society. That was changed on the fly without announcement. You have to assume that whoever did it endeavored to do it under the radar. But Albertans woke up a long time ago. And they're keeping an eye on this government. 
Well, Jaspo, I mean, isn't it a good thing if they up if they improve that you don't put something out for public consumption and feedback and change it as it goes? What does that render the feedback from earlier? It's meaningless. The entire exercise is meaningless. And there was no announcement that the change was being made. You can let me know what you think. We're going to be keeping an eye on our Real Talk RJ hashtag through this morning. I mean, I've read one email. I've got about 30 of them here in front of me printed out to get into. So this show might have to be six hours today, which is good news for our partners like the team at Bitcoin Well, because it means we all get to hang out longer and hear more about the amazing work that they do in this case, helping us understand more about crypto and financial sovereignty. And it doesn't just have to be on a personal level. It can be on a professional level too what about your business what's your plan big or small have you considered looking into crypto now don't take this as my endorsement that you sell everything you have and buy bitcoin but if you want to integrate it in bitcoin wells experts on how to do that in smart fashion you can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com real talk starts right now here's ryan jesperson Chris Clearfield helps leaders solve impossible problems. That's what he does for a job. He's the co-author of Meltdown, what plane crashes, oil spills, and dumb business decisions can teach us about how to succeed at work and at home. He works on risk, strategy, and innovation with leaders of uh, some of the world's most interesting companies, major oil producers, tech companies. He's worked with Microsoft and Etsy, and it's a real pleasure, Chris, to have you here on Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. This seems like the, the uh, an appropriate time in human history, although, although history always seems most relevant when it's rolling out in front of us, but to talk about recovering from or developing resiliency from disasters any given day checking the news it can seem like everything's going completely sideways well yeah and you know i i the lead-in today was super interesting and i'm i'm not an albertan so this isn't a story i've been following but you know it's so interesting with this curriculum issue because you know that there were you know dozens if not more people that that touched that curriculum and yet they came out with something that was so out of step with what was important to the broader community. And, you know, one of the things that I always think about when I'm thinking about the failure of a complex system, which we can get into what that means, but this certainly is in many ways, is how, how do we kind of start from the assumption that the people involved were doing the best that they could with the tools that they have? And even if we don't like the outcome, it's really interesting to start with that as a premise. And then we can get curious about, well, why did they make these decisions? You know, what, what was happening for them? Why didn't they include more diverse voices in, in, in coming up with a curriculum or making a big decision? Um, so yeah, this is, it. I don't know, this, this lead-in resonates with me. And I, I was reading an article um, about it and uh, by Carla Peck, uh, or she's quoted in it. And she's saying, it's like the people who wrote this have never met a child. And and that's just such an interesting, it's such an interesting critique when the whole purpose of this, like the whole customer of this curriculum is 
the child and educating the child and, and giving them a good start in critical thinking for, you know, for the rest of their lives to, to be contributing members to society. Oh, and that's such a huge, uh, I mean, when you talk about leadership as out of touch, whether you're talking about political leadership, corporate leadership, I had an amazing conversation with business leaders off the air a couple of weeks ago about, about understanding you know, privilege and understanding some of some of the issues that are more relevant in positions of leadership now than potentially before, because the general public is demanding it. That's where society is trending. Uh, how do leaders remain in touch? I mean, we can talk about this. There's obviously parallels with with our opener today and where we're going right back to in just a little bit. But how do you develop that as a coach? Well, I mean, it is it is such a good question because it's it's embedded in what leaders are rewarded for, why they're promoted, how how they're educated, you know, from from grade school on up. And and the thing that I would say is that, you know, when most of us come into leadership positions with the idea that that our job is to provide an answer, that our job is to know the answer and to kind of tell other people what the answer is, and then, you know, they'll go away and execute it. And, and indeed, that works on some kinds of problems. But I think there's a much more interesting kind of problem that's much more important that is how do you solve problems that don't have an answer yet? And for leaders, that requires them to be curious. It requires them to be collaborative. And it's just a very different skill set. And it requires a lot more discomfort, a lot more um, openness to people challenging your ideas, a lot more openness to people kind of pushing on you. And for some leaders, that can feel like a real, you know, a real existential threat. And so in my work as a coach, that's a lot of what I do. I help leaders kind of shift from this sort of arguing mindset to one where they're one where they're curious and they're able to uh, engage to solve problems rather than kind of, you know, promulgate their views to solve problems. Have you seen examples of that? I mean, I, I guess I think in a way, you know, I'm, I'm trying to mentally determine if I need to have a different conversation with you, whether we're talking about political leadership, corporate leadership, community leadership, but probably not in some way. Because ultimately, there's an accountability. There's either an election or an AGM or a shareholders meeting, or there's there's some form of accountability. Well, I, I it's really interesting that you went to accountability because I think one of the challenges about the modern world today is often how many how much our system is uh, buffers accountability, and so you know I, I think that does that does two things. One, I think it creates a lot of outrage with people, rightfully so, because they see leaders like Aloha Gate. I mean, I've, as I said, not in Alberta, so didn't hear about this until now, but, you know, what percentage of the people involved in Aloha Gate are still in office or are still employed? I, I, I bet it's, you know, a reasonable fraction, if not, if not all of them. And so I think when you look at the mechanism of democracy or annual general meetings, I mean, a lot of what these mechanisms do is they really limit the ways that people can have a voice. And so I think our accountability is more divorced from, from feedback than, than would be ideal to actually put people in a position where they're, they're reflecting and they're critical and they're, and they're learning. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's responsive. Yeah. I, so 
So when you look at, I mean, let's let's take this outside of a curriculum context or politics context. We we see things happening around us. I mean, the pandemic. I mean, you you're probably writing in time. You know, you have your podcast, the breakdown. I would imagine. You, I mean, you could do hours and hours and hours finding different angles on on crisis management or reaction to crisis when it comes to the pandemic alone we we look at the suez canal i don't even know why i'm laughing it like makes me laugh that story but it's not funny like it's not funny but it's so funny but it's not funny you know what i mean there's so much going on right now and they're just like i don't know if it's any worse than before i mean there's always yes it is is it why? Totally. It's worse than before because everything is more connected than before because the, you know, the, the, the media landscape means that there is not something that goes on in some place that you don't hold that. I'm going to adjust my camera. There we go. <laughs> there you now go. you can actually see me. I'm not, I'm not covered by the banner. Great. Shirt. Um, there you go. Thank you. Well, I wanted to, you know, I want, I just took my vest off. Um, oh, that's it not as fancy <laughs> yeah, uh, right. a vest, but you lost the tie. The Seattle, the Seattle, I lost the tie, the tie. Yeah. Lost it immediately. <laughs> um, sorry. Somehow I lost my train of thought, but no, you um, were saying, you know, you said everything is, I said, I don't know if everything's worse now. And you go, and I'm hoping for you to say, no, no, it's not worse. It's, but you go, yeah, no, it actually is. It is worse. Well, no, it, it, it is worse. And it's, it's worse in some good ways and it's worse in some concerning ways. And, and, and the good ways it's worse is that we are more aware of these things. And so we are, um, you know, there is a positive to that in some way, right? I, I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the, the people's voices, the voices of outrage about the curriculum change, we just wouldn't have been able to hear them because the gatekeepers would have, you know, k- kind of kept those voices suppressed often in favor of the the status quo, often in favor of the power structures that we have. Um, but they're, and, and that, that's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, you know, you, you've got outrage over good things and then you've got out, you've got outrage that's not so good over, you know, things like vaccines. And we can, we could talk forever about conspiracy theories, but, but there's something different about the way we connect and the way that information moves. And, and that's part of the story. But the other part of the story is just the way that the world is connected, right? I mean, we have all these drivers that have pushed us to efficiency, pushed us to, you know, I mean, exploring new frontiers for resources, pushed us to moving goods faster, you know, digitization moves things faster. And I think one of the things I think about is there is just this central role of technology systems in our society today that that didn't even really exist uh, 20, 30 years ago in, in the same way. You know, in the States, we've got electronic medical records now that are everywhere. Um, in, in Meltdown, in the book, we write about an instance where um, the Washington State, I'm in, I'm in Seattle, the Washington State Department of Corrections released thousands of prisoners early because they had a bug in their sentencing calculation. Um, and and that's just something where, you know, in, a, in an era of pen and paper, you could have made errors, but you probably wouldn't have made a systematic error that affected the, you know, that released thousands of prisoners early. Um, and so there is something different about our modern world and the way that we're connected. And that creates lots of opportunities, but it also causes lots of problems. And it requires something different from from all of us, from leaders, but also from members of the public and the way we engage with these things. So I'm actually, I, I, I don't know if I'm a technophobe. I'm probably like on the sliding scale. I'm, I'm probably like a five out of 10 when it comes to adopting new technology, but I don't, you know, things like 
Google Home or Alexa. I mean, even just saying Alexa, probably someone in the building here has Alexa and it's going to do something. And then it's and then she's going to have my social insurance number. All which, your listeners, right? All of your listeners. Just yeah. they just got there. They just had their Alexa's triggered. I never thought about that. Can I guess I could be triggering, you know, uh, you know, Alexa, don't Alexa sign up for Ryan Jesperson's Patreon. I should do that right. more, more often. Totally. Actually. That, that's totally. way smarter. Um, but I but I, I tend to steer clear of this kind of thing. But I see I mean, the convenience is amazing on. On, on on the way that people I don't even know all the stuff people use but the smart locks on the houses and the like, just everything on, you know app based banking and like just everything but if but if it all if it gets hacked or it crashes or you know what I'm saying Chris like are we more vulnerable now than ever before with all this new tech well it's i i i guess what i would say is is yes and, and and I think you've hit on something, which is this, what we think of as this paradox of progress, which is we've gotten a lot more capabilities. You know, we can do, we can do more in less time in many ways. I mean, you know, productivity from just over, over decades, productivity from an economic perspective has, has improved, but it's also slowing down now. And, and there's a way in which the, the thing that I want to fight for is just for for us to ask the questions in a different way. So one of the stories that we write about in the book is um, these hackers, they were, they were researchers, so they were, they were good guys, but these hackers that figured out how to hack a Jeep Cherokee as it was going down the highway. And there's this great wired reporter who's a friend of mine, Andy Greenberg, who writes this whole story. And you got video of like, you know, them blasting the music and, and turning off the, you know, turning the, the hazard lights on and all this stuff. And, it's like, why is this Jeep Cherokee connected to the internet? Like, that is the first question. Like, what do we get from connecting our cars? You know, I used to have a, a Subaru Outback and I could look up stock prices on my dashboard. And it's like, that's not worth it. You know what I mean? Like, that is not, we have to be making better decisions about the way to, um, like the, the value and the cost of connecting things because there's a value and there's a cost. And, and we just have to be, I think, more aware that we're we're often making a trade-off. Yeah, no kidding. <clears throat> this is purely anecdotal, but a car that I was driving last summer, nice car, wasn't mine. Uh, I don't have it anymore. But it had one of these key fobs, which is pretty par for the course now, I think. But you could, you know, you'd put your finger under the uh, under the the door handle, and it would unlock if you had the fob near you. You'd start it with a push button, like you didn't you didn't really there was no you know. And I came back from golf one day, locked the car, and then was entertaining in the garage, throwing some darts, hanging out. Went into the house, said good night. Wake up in the morning, car's been ransacked like ransacked you know and i'm and i'm going i locked the car i locked it i went back checked the cameras for my own peace of mind saw the lights flash like yeah it was locked you know what had happened is the key fob i had left it in my coat pocket in the garage through the wall somebody i saw it all happen on the camera i watched it happen the guy took six minutes to go through the car by the way which i thought was like the most brazen robbery of all time but um, went there and was able yeah. to through the garage wall, through the insulation, through the plywood, through the siding, was able to open the door. And I thought, like, if I would have had the old school key, that would never happen. I mean, that's one small, tiny anecdotal example. But in that moment, for me, the tech was far from worth it. Right. The tech cost quite a bit. Well, totally. And your example, I mean, 
there are people like this is systematized too. I mean, there are people that have, you know, repeaters that mean that your key fob can be in your house and, and somebody can get in your car outside. And I have neighbors who put their key fob in, in, you know, little tinfoil boxes to, to try and block really? it. Really? You know, sound. Yeah. And it, and it sort of sounds crazy, but it's also, it's also not, it's not necessarily crazy, but, but I, I think there's, you know, we can talk about this on the consumer level, but I, I think that there is a, a sort of bigger level that affects all of us in in more diffuse ways that's harder to see, but 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 equally, if not more important. And that's, you know, just staying with cars for a second. I mean, you used to be able to open a car and and you know, open your hood and look and see what's going on. And that's just no longer the case. You know, when I, well, I think about the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal, right? Oh. And if you read about the scandal, right? I mean, first of all, it's it's morally reprehensible. It's a, a huge management failure. It's part of why it happened is because you had a jerk CEO of Volkswagen who crushed dissent. You had these weird governance structures that didn't have a lot of feedback, but that's all on the organizational level. You know, if, you, if you've read about the scandal, you, you'll read the term defeat device. And the defeat device is what Volkswagen had to, you know, to cook the emissions, basically, to make it so they seem better than they were. But defeat device really evokes this idea of something that's like bolted on to the engine. And in fact, that's what a defeat device used to be. But in Volkswagen's case, the defeat device was, you know, parameters in the kind of operating system that governed how the engine worked. And so it's invisible. And and I think that's one of the other things that's true about today, going going back to your question of, is this getting worse? There's so much less visibility in how things work and what happens. And there's so much unexpected connections behind the scenes that we just, we just don't do, we, we're not, you know, we're not naturally, we do, we're not naturally raised or educated in a world that teaches us about the connections and the system where we are generally brought up in like a pretty linear world where, mm. you know, we learn as a kid that if we fall out of a tree, it's, it's worse to fall from twice as high as, you know, and, and we kind of internalize that, but in the modern world and our modern systems, so much is not linear so much, you know, a small mistake can have a big impact. I mean, that's what going viral is right. Both in the literal sense and in the, <laughs> and in the social media. Sense. You're so, yes, you're bang on with that. And, and you know what? And to bring this conversation full circle, I mean, we have like, at least a couple hundred emails, at least a few hundred emails about this curriculum. And that's a recurring theme, too, especially from the parent slash educators that are writing in. And they're saying our biggest concern here is that it teaches kids. It loads kids up on facts like like, right. you know, like Genghis Khan and Charlemagne. And I mean, we're, we're talking in grade two, Chris. Um, but 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 teachers are saying it doesn't teach it doesn't teach kids how to how to understand how to process it only teaches them what yeah so i've been thinking about this a lot um not in reference to the alberta curriculum specifically but but more generally i've got two kiddos one's eight one's three and so you know i think a lot about their education and what that looks like but but i also just interviewed a guy on my podcast his name is dave gagnon and he is he has a rad job he runs this learning lab at the university of wisconsin madison and what they do is they make video games for kids to learn from but not for them to learn facts for them to learn critical thinking and and process and what's cool is because it's a video game 
they can change stuff and see how that affects how kids learn. And so you might, as a kid, play, you know, path A of the video game or path B of the video game. And meanwhile, these researchers who, by the way, are not monetizing and selling your data, but are just looking to understand, are able to get these really cool insights. But in our conversation, one of the things that we talked about, which I thought was so interesting, is what does the word literacy mean? What does it mean to be literate? And, you know, the kind of the sort of like knee jerk definition is. Well, it, it, it kind of just means that we are, we're able to read, but there's this way of thinking about literacy that's like, well, literacy is actually our ability to engage with the world as it is and to be able to think critically about the world and to be able to work within the world. And so I think about, you know, in the U.S., our vaccine rollout has, you know, in some ways been been good, in some places been not so good. But one of the things that I think has been really interesting is we have a, you know, the, the most vulnerable population, the, the elderly population is also the least literate when it comes to the technology and the systems that we demanded of them. And, and so you really have this mismatch between what folks were able to do and, and what we required of folks. And I think that's a very kind of, that's a sort of very specific example of that, you know, that the difficulty of using online registration forms if you're 85 years old and, and that's not your jam. And, but I think that that example, I think thinking about literacy as the ability to engage with, affect and understand the world is a really powerful lens. And, and yeah, it was, it was cool to talk with Dave about that. Chris, I, we, we've got uh, our next guest hanging tight, so I've got to let you go. But let me add, just in closing, first of all, a couple amazing comments. We got a lot of uh, chatter on our live chat right now. It's fantastic. Um, Miranda says she says, if I unlock unlock with my key fob, her Ford escape at the mall parking lot, she says it will unlock other Ford escapes at the same time. <laughs> Kind of, that's, that's pretty awesome. wild. Um, and then Gina says, imagine our, she says, you know, when we named our daughter Alexa back in 1997, we thought we had a pretty unique name. I would suspect that in Gina's household, they just eschew that technology. I can't imagine. No, not yeah. you, Alexa. Not, no, you, Alexa. But <laughs> hey, in closing, I wanted to ask you, are you the VW emissions gate? Which, I mean, I think as a society, we're, we, we affix gate to too many things, but this one fit. I mean, this was a scandal. It is yes. a scandal. Are, yes. you, are you surprised that the VW brand appears to have survived it? Boy, that's an interesting question. You know, I'm not exactly surprised. They did a lot, I mean, they spent a lot of money, a lot of green to make this, you know, to kind of pay for, to, to buy an indulgence. So, you know, getting customers back, um, you know, buying customers' cars back from them. I mean, all this stuff. And so there's a way in which I'm not surprised. And, and I also think there's a way in which, you know, it's hard to be a global auto manufacturer. And I don't mean that to excuse what they did, but what I mean is like, they have factories and people and engineers and infrastructure. And, and that's not just going to go away. You know what I mean? Like their, their brand is part of it, but so is their infrastructure, their know-how and, and, and their technology. And it's just, that wouldn't just disappear. And so I think there's a, there's a staying power despite scandal that, um, that, that they have. And that I think a lot of companies have. Chris Clearfield is the author of Meltdown, 
what plane crashes, oil spills and dumb business decisions can teach us about how to succeed at work and home. It actually won business book of the year here in Canada. Uh, You can find out more about what he does at chrisclearfield.com. And of course, you can subscribe to his podcast, The Breakdown. Thanks for making time for us, Chris. It's great to see you. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. This is really fun. Thanks, Real Talkers. You bet. Till next um, time. Look at that. The guy talks the language and everything. I love it, man. I love a guest like that. We're going to get to Dr. Uh, Lorian Hardcastle in just a moment. Uh, we, you know, Sam, we'll get to some news headlines later in the show. But basically, one of the big stories is that last night it, it was revealed. It was announced. It was actually a scoop by Post Media reporter Don Braid. Alberta's doctors have voted no uh, to a new deal with the province. And Dr. Hardcastle is going to talk to us about that. We wanted to remind you that Friesen brought Others is so excited to have its 15th Alberta location open in South Edmonton. And if you've not seen it yet, what can I say? I'm just going to it's going to blow people's minds. Do we have I sent you some tweets. Can we get to those? Can we just say like, I mean, I can sit here and rant and rave about Friesen Brothers. But here's what real talkers are saying about Friesen Brothers. Like like Sturwald, Sam's buddy, says, I went there at 6.15 this morning. The first time, he wrote me this on the 28th of March. He said it was my first time there to get some bacon and a fresh loaf of sourdough for French toast. The loaf was done at 11.52. That's very specific, and I love it. Of course, the sourdough is always fresh. People crush the entire loaf in five hours. What about this one here? This other one, Uh, Nathan says, man, I can't believe how great this place is. Any chance Calgary will get a shop? And I love this one. These are like all on the same day. Real talkers chiming in. Simran says, okay, Jespo was right. Friesen Brothers is lit. And Robert replies, right? You can check him out. Alberta owned and Alberta grown. The team at Park Power, same deal for eight years. They've been not coming up on nine, as a matter of fact. Natural gas, electricity, and internet. They're locally owned. They employ local people. You call the call center, the customer service. Everybody's here. And they give back to their community. 10% of profits plugged back in. So why do I focus on that? It's because you're going to get your natural gas, your power, you know, your electricity, your internet from somebody. Why not give it to the group that supports Real Talk, especially with this promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. 70 bucks off your first bill, 2021-REALTALK. So here's the deal. Alberta's doctors have said no. Post Media reporting that they voted down a negotiated offer to settle a longstanding dispute with the government. Uh, The AMA, the Alberta Medical Association, confirming late last night that members voted 53% to 47% against the deal. About 60% of doctors, 59% of the 11,000 of them. If you're like me, all these numbers are like, what does it all mean, man? 59% of the 11,000 doctors voted. AMA's president, Paul Boucher, who thanked us for our interview request, but said they're not doing media interviews today. Uh, I know it was a difficult decision for many, said uh, Dr. Boucher. The questions are now what comes next? How do we deal with these issues without an agreement? Dr. Lorian Hardcastle is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. She specializes in health law and policy, and we're grateful she's made time for us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for being here. I think we might have you on mute, doctor, but uh, we'll get that figured out. And there you go. Hey, here we go. I said, thanks for having me. You think after all this time, I would know to unmute. But do you you think, does it make you feel any better that you are not the first? 
Yes. Yes. yes, it does. Yes, it's it's almost a daily occurrence, Doc. So it's it's all good. Um, let's get right into this. Uh, you know, I was going through some of the numbers, and and fifty three forty seven. It, it's kind of a close vote, I guess. Fifty nine percent turnout, which is decent. It's it's about what our turnout looks like in elections. Um, what do you make of it early on? I mean, you've been following this for a long time, obviously. Well, I think I think I'm not surprised it was a, it was a close vote. Uh, certainly, a lot of people uh, were on the fence or didn't know what to do. I think even those who did vote yes were not. It was not a happy yes. Uh, a lot of people are quite distrustful of the government and quite disappointed about what's gone on and and with the agreement itself. And so, I think even those who, who voted yes weren't weren't thrilled. Um, I think on the no side, ultimately, the relationship with the government, the potential effects that this agreement would have on patients, and, and then, of course, um, you know, some of the some of the concerns with with the direction health policy is going in Alberta led a lot of doctors to vote no. Can we talk about that? I mean, you're a health law and policy expert. Uh, I don't talk to a lot of people that are associate professors in a faculty of law and medicine. So what direction is medicine in Alberta going that you think that physicians may be voting against? Well, so certainly we've seen a shift with this government towards um, more corporate medicine. Uh, They're looking at contracting out surgeries to for-profit facilities. And I think that that makes a lot of doctors nervous in terms of how how that will affect patients. And within the terms of this specific agreement, it's a capped budget. And, you know, your family doctor is is billing away at that capped budget the same way that Talis Babylon is billing away at that capped budget. And, and I think they're concerned that entities like Talis Babylon will bill a lot towards that cap. Um, and once that cap is, is hit, doctors face having some of their billings withheld from them. And so, so I think, you know, some of the, the competition with those for-profit entities um, and, and concerns with quality of care as well uh, in terms of the lack of continuity that, uh, that those, those kinds of services provide um, and some of the concerns with the kinds of uh, quality issues and uh, that, that we'll face with those for-profit uh, chartered surgical facilities. So, so I think there are some bigger policy concerns and I think some doctors felt that voting yes to the agreement would not only be ratifying the agreement, but would be implicitly uh, giving their approval to, to some of those health policy choices of the government. So what ultimately can this mean? I mean, if there is no deal, are, are they just like thousands of other people that are currently working without a deal or do doctors withdraw their services? Is Are, are they considered essential services? Like what directions can this go? Well, so it, it's not going to mean a lot for, for patients. Mm. Um, there is a, a schedule of benefits. Doctors can continue to bill to see patients, even without an agreement in place. Uh, this, this isn't the first time a provincial medical association has been without an agreement. Uh, Ontario was without an agreement for a couple of years, a few years back. Um, and so from a patient's perspective, things continue as usual, um, but certainly the government will will want to come back to the table in order to get the the stability and the certainty that perhaps an agreement brings. I I wanted to note um, Alberta's health minister Tyler Shandro. Uh, issued a statement the government had intended, I guess, to make the announcement this morning, uh, scooped by media, so the AMA and then the government issued comment. 
Uh, Minister Shandro says, quote, while the result is disappointing, it does not erase the meaningful collaboration and mutual understanding that was gained through the process. He said that their effort has not been misspent. The momentum gained will not be lost. Our government will seek to further renew our relationship with the Alberta Medical Association in weeks and months to come as we work together to ensure Albertans continue to benefit from quality health care. It's not exactly yelling at doctors on driveways. It's not exactly the, the very combative tone that that has that has been very obvious uh, for the past, do we say, 12 to 18 months. Um, what do you make of the significance of the minister's statement? Do you believe that they have been working collaboratively or do you think that maybe a significant portion of this no vote was from doctors who just frankly don't appreciate how they've been treated for the past year? Yeah, I certainly think that some some of the doctors who voted no did so in part because of the minister's treatment of them over the past year and a half, and in particularly during a pandemic. Uh, you know, we saw the minister fight with doctors publicly about how much they make, um, called the claim that doctors were leaving the province a lie, um, and, and I think that combat of tone did did affect the vote. Um, in terms of the minister turning over a new leaf as of about a week ago and sort of being a little bit contrite about some of the things he said in the past, I don't personally believe it. I think that this, this newfound collaborative attitude was probably an attempt to influence the vote when it appeared about a week ago. A week ago. Um, in terms of today's, or I guess last night's, uh, collaborative statement and statement about working together, I think that that may just be strategy. I think he wants doctors to come back to the table and he probably wants them to agree to an agreement that's not much better than the one we see here. And so if, if I were a doctor, I would be suspicious of, of the minister's uh, newfound cooperative attitude and I would be looking to him to actually walk the walk for a sustained period of time um, and, and to really embrace that that spirit of collaboration. I have to be honest that since we went live about 45, 50 minutes ago, I've not been all over social media. I've not been scouring hashtags and seeing what people are saying. But but what I did see earlier this morning, uh, an interesting trend. I won't call it overwhelming, but I did see it from people I know or people I know of, some of them to be partisan conservatives, some of them to be certainly not conservative supporters. And the common thread was from a handful of individuals that due to this, the minister must be replaced, that the premier must install a new health minister. What do you think about that? Well, I think I think it's an interesting an interesting idea and perhaps it will happen. But but part of me wonders why now? This isn't the first scandal we've had with with this minister. Um, a lot of people called for his replacement when he yelled at a physician on his driveway. Um, even after that, we heard Premier Kenny uh, refer to Minister Shandro as as doing a great job. And so I'm not sure if if, if this will be enough. Uh, certainly, doctors have called for for somebody else to have negotiations and discussions with. Uh, there were calls, for example, for, for Premier Kenny to deal directly with them, I think, in the fall. Um, and so so potentially, uh, potentially this this may be big enough to prompt a cabinet shuffle. Yeah, you have to wonder. I mean, really, uh, Premier seems uh, like I mean, you know, if you really think about it, there's there's been the odd shuffle, I think, of, of Minister Madhu. Uh, obviously, Minister Allard, but but for the most part, he doesn't seem to me uh, to be the type of 
premier, the type of government or party leader that that that's shuffling the deck all the time. It just doesn't seem to be his style. And he certainly doesn't seem to be the type of political leader that real. I mean, when he changes his mind, it is due to overwhelming public pressure. Like, it's not like a, he's not the type of political leader that sees some unfriendly polling and, and says, oh, that's it. I better change. You see, I guess the word I'm looking for is stubborn. Uh, yeah. So I'd, I'd be surprised. I share your feeling. I'd be I'd be, as a matter of fact, gobsmacked if a no vote from doctors was what was shuffled Chandro out of the health file. Yeah, and in, in some ways, putting somebody else in that file may not be, be beneficial. Right. Uh, we've seen Minister Chandro's approval ratings plummet in that file. And and strategically, do you want to put someone else in that file who whose approval may then plummet and, and may have trouble getting reelected next time around? Or or do you just leave Minister Shandro there and and let his his approval rating be what it is and and maybe he doesn't get reelected, but at least then you haven't sacrificed someone else. Uh, doctor, before I let you go, um, I just uh, you and another good friend of this show, uh, Dr. Uh, Ubako Bogu, wrote a piece, uh, an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail. Um, yeah. It's a complete swerve off our current subject matter, but I know you'll be OK with it. You argue that the worst part of COVID-19 vaccine nationalism is that it'll have the opposite effect on the world. This is this is relevant, pertinent to every single one of us right now. Can, can you take us into the premise of this? Sure. So, so the premise of the, of the piece is really that, well, it's understandable and reasonable for countries to prioritize their own interests in terms of getting their citizens vaccinated, that in some ways we need to look at this problem as a, as a global one. There's global trade, there's global movement of people and goods, and really we have a global economy. And so by prioritizing national interests with little regard for, for other countries and, and you know, stockpiling or hoarding vaccines, uh, potentially we're, we're actually prolonging the recovery from COVID. And some researchers have done some modeling to, to support that. Um, and, and they found that a more equitable distribution of, of vaccines would actually expedite the, the recovery. Um, and, and so, you know, what, what does that mean practically? Um, it can mean things like uh, putting pressure on drug manufacturers to license their vaccines so that more people can make them and so they're getting made quicker. I think it also um, asks us to consider what vaccines wealthier countries are buying. And so Moderna and Pfizer are significantly more expensive and um, of course require freezing and two doses. Whereas vaccines like the, like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine are cheap one dose vaccinations that can be refrigerated. And so should we be buying those at all? Or should we be letting those, those vaccines go to countries who, who need, who don't have the infrastructure or the finances to buy the, the Pfizer or the Moderna? We, we know what's happening though, right? I mean, yeah. you, you, you write, uh, you and Dr. Ogbogu, uh, high income countries have purchased 55% of worldwide vaccine supply, though they account for just 16% of the world's population. Uh, you say Ottawa has contracts in place that total five times our population. Yet, the opposition parties, all of them, would have you believe that uh, the federal liberal government, and I'm not, I'm not shilling for the liberals here, but just the fact is, uh, if you take a look at any statements from from Jagmeet Singh or, or Aaron O'Toole or any of the others, I can't say the Greens are on the record here, but 
But really, they're arguing that the federal government hasn't done jack squat, that they have failed Canadians, that the reason why not everybody's vaccinated right now in Alberta or B.C. or Saskatchewan is because the federal government doesn't have vaccines, hasn't procured vaccines and has done a lousy job. You're writing that they have contracts in place that total five times our population. And because of that, you write that the lopsided supply in favor of affluent nations means poorer countries not expected to have access to vaccines until 2023. It's political, obviously. It yeah. Yeah. And, and and I think some of the rhetoric we've seen from uh, from the, the opposition leader, but even within some of the provinces from Premier Kenny, uh, from from Premier Pallister, some of the the rhetoric we've seen is is to call this out as a as a political issue and and to try to um, you know shame or blame Trudeau for for his his procurement of vaccines. But interestingly, these critics don't have a lot in the ways of solutions or suggestions for for Prime Minister Trudeau. And and so in some ways, I think they're really using this as a as as a political tool um, more than having real policy solutions that they think that the prime minister should be should be implementing what's one thing i mean you're a health law policy expert what's one thing that the federal government could be doing better should be doing better right now well when post sars there was a lot of discussion of of the public health care system and building up the infrastructure to respond to to a pandemic and and some of the recommendations that came out of some of the sars inquiries were implemented um, but certainly one of the things that was discussed both in the wake of sars and then in 2009 in the wake of h1n1 was we should build up the capacity to manufacture our own vaccines. And so I think, you know, we're kind of starting to look into that now and starting to, to build that up. But um, my hope is that we don't abandon those efforts once a significant percentage of Canadians are vaccinated, because we're always going to need vaccines. Um, and, and countries who have their own supply, some of them have, have managed to vaccinate a significantly larger percentage of their citizens than we have. Uh, sometimes I sometimes I prepare myself to ask a question and I go, uh, you, it might be so obvious. It might be it might be a stupid question. Then you're going to be gracious and say, Ryan, no question is a stupid question. Let me just ask you this. Do you think that the pandemic is going to dramatically change people's minds, change people's conviction, maybe strengthen people's conviction that we do need? To, I mean, you're arguing against sort of a nationalistic approach to vaccine procurement here. But what about things like health research, vaccine development, you know, prescription drug development? What about what about if we want to talk about a national pharmacare program? I mean, all of this could interweave itself, couldn't it? Do you think that Canadians are going to insist on or at least be more supportive of federally funded laboratories, research facilities and the like as a result of all this? Yeah, I would. I would hope so. I would hope that we see the merits in um, not just not just Canadian production of, of vaccines and investment in in the uh, research around vaccines, but also pharmaceutical products more more generally. Um, Canada, as with basically every other country in the world, struggles at times with drug shortages. And certainly this happened uh, on a few occasions during COVID. There are constantly drugs in, in shortage. Um, and we've known about this problem for, for decades now. And so, um, you know, we shouldn't be looking just at, at bolstering our ability to manufacture vaccines, but also having more of a, of a pharmaceutical industry in general. Um, particularly if things like national pharmacare are on the table. 
Dr. Lorian Hardcastle, an associate professor at the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law, the Cummings School of Medicine. Grateful for your perspective this morning. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. We're going to get to more of your emails, uh, your comments here on our, our live chat, and of course, on our hashtag RealTalkRJ. Wanted to let you know this morning that the team at Grand Dog Essentials with their quality raw food is delivering to customers. That's right, right to doorsteps in Edmonton, Calgary, and Central Alberta. Ask them about their new supplements. They have nutritional experts on staff. Granddog.ca, you can find all their information. By the way, you can use the promo code REALTALK for 10% off your first order. But ask about their daily probiotic for dogs with digestive or immune issues. Ask about the digestive enzymes that they can infuse or that green-lipped muscle oil that everybody's excited about. Or like I told you, with our Black Lab Monroe, Maybe blueberries might be the thing for your dog. They can customize it because they care about your dog at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. Also, a big shout out to the team at the University of Alberta Faculty of Graduate Studies. Tomorrow's a big day for all of us. I'm so thrilled to be hosting their 3MT award. The 3MT is the three-minute thesis competition. It goes live tomorrow at 1 p.m., can we announce this? I don't know if I should announce this because, Sam, you and, and another tech wizard, our tech wizard and the U of A's tech wizard, you're working together and we may be able to push this out. We may be able to stream tomorrow's event live on our YouTube channel, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, uh, where we're at right now is we're testing it this afternoon. Testing, but, um, testing. If, it, uh, if that goes well, which I think it will, then, uh, okay. then we'll be right there. Okay. So uh, we're on track. We're on track. So you may see it. We'll likely see it here on our channel, or you can also just go to theirs uab.ca slash 3mt uab.ca slash 3mt we'll push this hard tomorrow so you know these are like some of the smartest people at the university doing incredible research and you get to learn about it in in like bite-sized chunks it it can be hard to get into a thesis a graduate level but they do a great job and then the winners first first runner-up and people's choice are going to join us friday here live on the show it's going to be very cool let's take a quick look at what's making news today sam Well, as mentioned, Alberta doctors have voted no to a negotiated offer to settle uh, their dispute with the Alberta government. This being reported, a scoop by Don Braid with Post Media. Always want to give a shout out to those that scoop the stories. The word from the AMA president, Paul Boucher. The question, what comes next? How do we deal with our issues without an agreement? The message from the health minister, our government will seek to further renew our relationship with the AMA. We will work together to ensure Albertans continue to benefit from quality health care. So what are the issues? What does the AMA identify as the issues per its president? Physician supply, ensuring Albertans have access to doctors they need, and the sustainability of community practice. The Alberta Federation of Labor is demanding a public inquiry into how the government handled COVID-19 outbreaks at meatpacking plants. Uh, Jenny Russell, Charles Rosnell at the CBC reporting that internal Alberta ag documents show that the UCP government and health officials prioritized continued operation of the Cargill meatpacking plant over worker safety, even as infection rates skyrocketed. CBC News obtaining an audio recording of an April 18th, 2020 town hall meeting between government officials and Cargill workers, says Sean Tucker, a professor out of the University of Regina. If you look at the evidence, it's clear 
that keeping the plant open was more important than worker safety. This story continues to develop and we'll keep you posted. And finally, 338 with some interesting polling. Why don't we take a look at this? Here's where Canadians are at right now. At least those responding, you can check out the full poll at 338canada.com. When it comes to support for federal parties, the Liberals are up two points to 35%. The Conservatives down seven to 28%. You wonder if that had to do with the optics of that climate change members vote. I don't know. The NDP are up six to 22. The Bloc Québécois down a point to seven and the Greens down a point to six. You have to assume that the Greens are hoping to see more excitement around a new leader and a fresh start. And we'll see. I think the Green Party of Canada could be relevant in some way, shape or form next federal election, which, of course, could be soon. I would agree with you because yeah. like, the Greens are like they're a global party and they have networks across the whole world. And, and just, you know, if you if you kind of watch them, they're becoming more relevant in Europe. They're starting to really win elections and they're they're starting to have a significant voice in other places. So I'm I, I entirely agree with you. It's just like they've they've always been a bit of a sleeper for a while and they've been an important voice in cabinet or in uh, in parliament as well. But uh, I think you're right. I think that their their popularity is definitely on an upswing. And I don't just to just to uh, speak frankly Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people and I do not mean any offense but this is just the way that a lot of people perceive the Greens they either see it as a throwaway vote or they see him as a party that's that that is completely unreal like completely unrealistic policy yeah like completely unrealistic like shut down all shipping ports and and kill all the pipelines and shut down the oil sands and go completely solar on everything. And people go, what is this pie in the sky? Sort of like, what is this going to be run by leprechauns? And we're going to have unicorns carrying people around. And, but the fact of the matter is, is that in other countries, in other jurisdictions, greens oftentimes, uh, can can form some pretty legitimate policy or contribute to legitimate policy and are perceived as a pretty legitimate political party. So you'd be interested to see if the if the change in guard and 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 people are shopping around too, I think, when it comes to political parties. People are looking for a home yeah. these days. You know, whether yeah. that's one issue that drives you to a party or whether it's sort of an ideology or whether you're you're saying no to an ideology, whatever the case may be. So uh we do have an ask in. We have an ask in with the new leader of the of the Greens and and we hope to speak with her at some point. This next conversation, I think, is going to be a good one because I, I don't think Sarah Austin will be surprised if I throw her a question or two on Alberta's curriculum explosion. But we're most interested in talking to her right now on the impact of COVID-19 and this pandemic and everything related to it on kids. Uh, Sarah's a world-class champion for children. She's got more than 20 years of global and Canadian experience. She's the founder and CEO of Children First Canada. It's a national movement to make Canada the best place in the world for kids to grow up. We're going to talk about a new partnership they have with StatsCan, which is pretty cool. Sarah making her Real Talk debut this morning. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. This is, uh, why don't we talk curriculum first? Because, I mean, it's 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 the story that everybody's talking about. Our email inbox is slammed and the government's hearing from Albertans all over the place. Um, you, I would imagine, see this through a couple of different lenses, right? I mean, you see this through as a parent, <laughs> you, you see this, you see this through Children First Canada. How are you making sense of what you're seeing relatively early in this process? Well, it is kind of difficult to make sense of it all, to be honest. There's been uh, lots of discussion. The curriculum has been under review for a very long time. And yet, uh, I think there's a lot of dis- disappointment and frustration with what we have seen released uh, this week. Uh, you know, deep frustration on the part of teachers, 
that this, uh, you know, the curriculum doesn't reflect uh, the realities of, of what it's like to teach very young children in particular. Um, and many parents also deeply frustrated that this doesn't reflect the values that they want to see instilled in their children and not the quality of education that we think our children deserve. So, you know, whether it's as a parent of a 10 year old or as an advocate for, for every child in our province, you know, I think there's a long way to go. And, and I'm hoping as, as many parents are in, in this province that we'll see um, through the consultation process, some significant improvements. Now you, um, do I understand correctly? I know that you work out of Alberta and Ontario. Is, is, is your house in Alberta? Are you, are you coming to us from Ontario? Where are we talking to you from today? No, I live in Calgary, Alberta. You're in, in Calgary. Of Calgary. Okay. I've been here for a number of years and this is home for me. Okay. So you just, you do a lot of traveling and you work across Canada, obviously, but it's always great to know where people's frame of reference is. Um, right. Why, why don't we talk about the, the minute that we announced that we were talking to you, we saw immediate response from people, uh, from audience members that went, thank goodness, we're going to have this conversation about the impact of this pandemic on kids. Um, you're working with Statistics Canada to, to, to get some good data on this and to better understand it. But over overall, I mean, generally speaking, before we dig in, is there an undeniable impact on kids due to this pandemic? Absolutely. There are both short and long-term consequences of the pandemic on children. We know that the pandemic has, you know, children have been the least likely to get sick or seriously ill from the pandemic. And yet the lockdown measures have taken a very disproportionate toll on children, both young and old, uh, that they're going to be paying for for years to come, that they individually will suffer the consequences, but we as a society will pay for, whether it's the, the learning loss that our kids have experienced during the lockdown and virtual learning, uh, the, the impacts to their physical and mental health are massive. Uh, you know, I could go on and on. They, you know, they're into countless indicators and, and both, you know, some very, uh, short-term indicators that show that the kids are not all right and uh, they have been left behind. They've paid a, a huge toll for the lockdown and made exceptional uh, um, sacrifices for keeping their kids, their families and our communities safe. And yet they simply haven't had the support that they need to survive, let alone thrive. When we talk about short-term and long-term consequences in the short term, what are, what are some things that you would say that parents should be keeping an eye out for? What are some of the things that, that maybe might even be preventable to a certain degree? Well, of course, mental health is a big, a big one. And I think many families have experienced this. Uh, kids have felt a deep sense of social isolation when they've been cut off from their peers, cut off from extended family members. Uh, you know, being confined to their homes for very long periods of time, or even when they've been back in school, all the pressures that they're facing because of the restrictive measures has taken a big toll on their mental health. Even before the pandemic, mental health was a significant concern for kids in Canada. Suicide is currently the leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 14, and that's a pre-pandemic uh, stat. And we know that with kids being in isolation, that there's been a steep rise in children experiencing uh, mental distress, whether it's suicidal ideation, uh, self-harm, depression, anxiety, you know, across the board, that kids have experienced grave impacts to their mental health and not only impact their development now, but they're going to feel the consequences of that for many years to come. I don't know why I, uh, I mean, every day doing this job, I realize I have so much to learn, but I, I would have never guessed if you would have said, what's the leading cause of death for children age 10 to 14? I think I probably would have guessed motor vehicle accidents or, or, or I don't know, farm accidents or something like suicide. I, 
It's shocking. I mean, as a parent of a 10-year-old, that stat keeps me up at night. Yeah. That deeply worries me for the health of my own child and for, for kids across this country. And, and that is a new stat. Um, previously, the leading cause of death for children was uh, preventable accidents and injuries, mm. uh, whether that was accidents like you talked about, motor vehicle accidents, bike accidents, uh, drownings, choking. Uh, and that is still true for the vast majority of children. But for kids in this age bracket of 10 to 14, suicide is now uh, their greatest, uh, the, the leading cause of death for children. And you know, for as parents, as citizens, uh, I think that's a wake-up call for our, our country that the kids aren't all right. They are in desperate need of support that they aren't receiving. Uh, there's over the past decade, there's been a 66% increase in children showing up in emergency rooms uh, because of suicidal ideation, self-harm. Uh, that's a massive increase. So it, the fact that they're having to show up in emergency rooms means that they're not getting the long-term care that they need from their pediatricians, from their long-term care providers. And uh, you know they're often on wait lists in some provinces up to two years waiting for mental health supports. That's not all right. You know, like every day matters in the life of a child. Any parent, every, any child will tell you that every day matters. And so think of children waiting two years to access mental health supports. It's it's galling. Yeah, I mean, if 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 heaven forbid one of our kids shatters their femur in 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 a skating accident or or cuts their head open by hitting the fireplace. Um, they're attended to almost immediately. It's it, it's preposterous to think. And I understand there are so many contributing factors. That doesn't mean that we're okay with it. But two years. I mean, six mm-hmm. months is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's it's complicated. And as a parent, it's often very difficult to navigate the, the health system and to figure out how to get your child the support that they need in a timely way. And, uh, you know, even overcoming the stigma of asking for help is, is a big burden for children and for their parents. And when they finally get over that hurdle to be put on such an extensive wait list is, is deeply disappointing and very frustrating. And parents, you know, I've spoken to so many parents uh, throughout the pandemic who uh, their children were healthy and well prior to the pandemic, but who have now experienced suicidal ideation or self-harm in a very significant way. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about just, you know, far-flung ideas, you know, people within my friend circle, uh, my, uh, my colleagues, you know, people that we all know and love and trust um, are experiencing this in their own homes. And it's, it's, it's very uh, concerning as parents and the citizens to see this happening to our children. Christy's watching us live. She says, I'm so grateful that we're bringing the impact of the pandemic on kids to the forefront. Uh, she says, as the parent of a 16 year old, I worry every single day about her mental health and my heart breaks for her. Um, when we're talking about longer term impact here, now this is, is, for the most part, going to be speculative, obviously, because we're still in it. Um, but we could hit this from a number of angles, couldn't we? We, we could talk about social development. We, we could talk about intellectual development. Kids, you know, uh, even I mean, even something is dumb, which is not dumb, but it's dumb. I'll acknowledge me and my buddies talking about the fact that our sons are, for all intents and purposes, going to be a year behind in their development playing hockey. Now, most people don't care about that. And I don't care if my son plays pro hockey or not. It's preferable that he does. But if he doesn't. That's going to be fine. But every single parent could probably identify ways where they suspect their kid may be swimming against the current a little bit. Absolutely. Whether it's in their education. I mean, there's already um, evidence research that's come out from the University of Alberta and other academic institutes that have shown that there's already a massive learning loss that kids have experienced that will impact them for many years to come, uh, where there's predictions that it will impact their earning potential as adults. You've talked about physical activity. I mean, of course, we all want our kids to succeed in sports, whatever their you know sport of choice may be. But the fact that kids have lost a year of physical activity um, is, again, deeply concerning. Uh, during the lockdown, uh, barely 5% of children were meeting their daily physical activity guidelines. Barely 5% of kids getting the activity they need for their bodies to stay healthy and well. 
And that's continued. I mean, we're, we haven't seen the, the longer term research on this yet, but I know for, because of the closures of sports and because of uh, the restrictive measures for uh, physical activity in schools or recess, you know, our kids are really suffering from the lack of activity, which of course affects their physical bodies, but also their, their mental health. Uh, and of course, there's going to be long-term impacts from that that we just can't currently measure yet, but we know intuitively, and there's lots of data to show that, uh, that this is taking its toll on children and will certainly affect their long-term development. Hmm. I, I just got a text here from, from my personal trainer, who's just a wonderful guy, Graham Duty. Uh, people can check out GrahamDuty.com, D-O-O-D-Y. He says, thank you so much for this conversation about kids' health. He says, nothing has worried me more through all of this. I mean, this is all over parents' radar. So, so the question is, our goal here is certainly not to do interviews or have conversations that leave people exasperated, stressed out, and feeling helpless. So what can we do? Well, there's a lot we can do. I mean, first of all, our political leaders need to know that our kids matter. I mean, throughout the pandemic, we've heard a lot of talk about the, the care for the elderly and long-term care homes, rightly so. We've heard lots of discussion about the she session and the impact of the economic um, measures on, on women in particular. But we haven't heard very much discussion about children. I mean, there was certainly a rise of parental activism around the lockdown of schools um, at a provincial level. But at a federal level, there simply hasn't been uh, the translation of that parental um, voice speaking up and trying to advocate for our kids uh, with, with the prime minister, with members of cabinet, with the members of parliament. We need to speak up for our kids and we need to enable our kids to speak up for themselves. You know, one of the things that gives me hope during this pandemic is that kids themselves have been taking action. We have a program called the Young Canadians Parliament that uh, kids were meeting monthly last year throughout the pandemic to talk about the issues of how they were being impacted by the pandemic, whether it was food security, violence in their homes, their mental health, on and on. Uh, and they got to meet with their peers to talk about these issues and to speak with um, members of cabinet and, and members of parliament to, to advocate for themselves and make their voices heard. But they need us as adults to speak up for them to uh, to to advocate. For, you know, we're all very likely going to see an election this year. We need to be calling our MPs and speaking up on behalf of our children and, and giving our, our kids the chance to be heard. Uh, the, you know, we're heading into a federal budget just in a few weeks' time, and I'm doubtful that we'll see the measures that are really necessary to uh, the bold leadership that our children require. We need massive investments on these issues. Uh, children are both a provincial and federal jurisdiction, and so we do need to advocate at both levels to ensure that the kids get the investment that they need to not only survive, but thrive. Okay, so if you were, uh, I mean, I do know that this is a huge part of what you do, and and uh, and, and people, obviously, we're going to talk more about your organization. Um, if you have you were holding the pen uh and it, and if finance minister christian freeland says uh all right all right sarah uh, you know how how would you spend a hundred to four hundred million dollars we're talking federal budget <laughs> federal budget right. Well, right yeah how would you do i it? mean it's been as it's been estimated that from, from a mental health perspective that we need at least $400 million released to support mental health initiatives for kids across the country. Uh, we, you know, we've worked with child health experts from Children's Healthcare Canada and leading children's hospitals across the country. They need a massive injection of funding to provide the mental health supports that our kids need to bring down, bring down those wait times and get kids the, desperate, you know, the, the support they desperately need. We need an injection of, of funds around uh, the protection of children from violence. You know, we saw funding for kids' health early on in the pandemic, but we need support at the community level for organizations like the Child Advocacy Centers that provide wraparound supports for children who have experienced abuse to help them you know, intervene early and provide the support that kids need to recover and, and to thrive. 
we need funding to support um, activities, uh, physical activities for children, for kids to stay active during the pandemic and beyond. You know, even before the pandemic, our kids were not physically active enough as they as they really need to be. Canada had a D rating um, amongst uh, wealthy nations for for physical activity. So again, we need to get our kids active. Uh, but even beyond sort of those immediate threats to children, we need to see the systemic change that's and seeing that our kids really matter at a federal level, that they matter to Canadians. And one of the things we've long called for is a federal commissioner for children. Uh, commissioners are independent offices that exist in Parliament to uh, put the interests of children first, to really look at policy through the lens of children and the protection of their rights and hold government accountable. They exist in more than 60 countries around the world. They've been a proven and effective strategy to improve the lives of children in a very short period of time. Uh, and Canada has studied the, uh, the need for a commissioner for over 30 years, and yet it simply hasn't crossed the finish line. There's a bill right now in the Senate that's been crawling its way through the parliamentary process, but it's unlikely to cross the finish line before an election. And we want the government to take this bill on and, and lead the way and ensure that our kids have an advocate in government who will uh, develop a plan of action, work with, uh, with all levels of government and with civil society and kids themselves to take action now uh, to intervene quickly to ensure that our kids come through this pandemic healthy and well, and that kids remain uh, central to our public policy framework moving forward. Sarah Austin's the CEO of Children First Canada. You can check him out at childrenfirstcanada.org. As as Canadians, we always love to and and, and uh, you you see news outlets will talk about it. We have a lot of fun with it, and it'll hit the internet that every time every time uh, some agency or or you know some organization declares Canada as the best place in the world to live, and we all know that, and we celebrate it, and just look at our mountains and our water and our people and our culture and our natural resources and our economy and everything else that we do. And Canada is just the best. Except for, are we actually, like in the context of what we're talking about, kids, is Canada the best place on planet Earth for a kid to grow up right now? Well, there is a persistent myth. This is one of the best places to raise a child. We pull Canadians and most Canadians think that we are a top five or top 10 country for children. But that simply isn't true. Over the past decade, Canada has gone from being ranked 10th amongst OECD countries to rank 30th out of 38 OECD countries. So we are far from being a world leading country for kids. You know, that's a very sharp decline in just a decade. Uh, so it's clear that kids have not been a federal priority. They have not received the attention and um, injection of resources that they rightly deserve. They represent nearly a quarter of our population and they are 100% of our future. And yet they simply have not had the support that they need. Um, and, you know, whether it's to ensure the survival of our children or, to, you know, from an immigration perspective to for Canada to continue to remain um, a, a, a destination of choice, a place where, you know, people from around the world want to raise, move to Canada to raise a child we need to do better. Uh, we are the kids are not thriving. We've fallen far behind, and we need to get things back on track. That's why things like a children's commission are critically important. In the UK, for instance, they were lagging behind on the OECD indicators. They put in place commissioners in England, Scotland, and Wales, and they quickly moved up the ladder in just a very short period of time. So. Again, this is a proven way to make uh, a tangible difference in the lives of kids. It only costs $8 million to put a commissioner like this in place. You know, to the average Canadian, that may sound like a lot of money, but in a federal budget, that's just a drop in the bucket. And so, you know, we think our kids deserve it. Uh, you know, they, they, whether you're a parent or an auntie, an uncle, um, or just an ordinary person in, living in our community, I think we can all see that the kids are really struggling right now. They weren't well before the pandemic, and it's certainly gotten much worse and over the course of the past year, uh, we need to make uh, sure that our kids are priority in this new budget and uh, and moving forward. 
I feel a, a do you, I don't know in your line of work. I, I feel almost like a heaviness as we're having this conversation. Like you provided us, Sam. Do you mind throwing up that infographic you provided this to us? It looks to me like you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you partnered with the University of Calgary uh, Institute for Public Health and the Alberta Children's Hospital. It looks like, and and some of these statistics that you provided to us um, are, are you know one in five kids live in poverty. Uh, one in three Canadians have experienced abuse before their 15th birthday. You talked about the, the suicide as the leading cause of death for kids age 10 to 14. You talk about the fact that six out of 10 students polled say that they're unmotivated due to online learning. Uh, I, I mean, the mental health, you know, 57% of participants reporting mental health was somewhat worse or much worse. We did a similar poll with our team at Y Station several weeks back and, and and the numbers were staggering on the on the amount of people that feel that their mental health was worse or much worse through this pandemic but these are the kids that we're talking about and and oftentimes i know that kids are resilient and all of those things but they also look to us don't they and it's kind of our job right. like when you start to mess with when you mess with kids or when you mess with the elderly that's when we get really <laughs> pissed off right that's when we get really yeah. upset so yeah, how do Canadians you... care deeply for our kids. Yeah. I mean, we want everything. Every every parent wants to do the best for their child in a society. We really do believe that you know kids are uh, not only our our future, but they're also critical to our present. And so you know, this I hope that, that you know sharing this information today will shock and uh, and anger uh, people who are listening and watching this show. Um, that people will be motivated, you know, and going beyond the, the the anger, the shock, and awe to taking action. Our leaders need to know that this is not all right. That our kids deserve better. We expect better, and we will hold them accountable to this. Um, you know, it's uh, we have to get past this persistent myth that Canada is a world leading country for kids, and really advocate for our kids and uh, enable our kids to advocate for themselves. This can't continue. We will pay very long term consequences as a society for uh, failing to invest in our kids. There is a huge return on investment in ensuring that our kids have a healthy start in life, have a healthy childhood. Uh, we are, you know, are, we're just going, the toll is too big. We can't afford to continue like this. A lot of uh, my parents always joke. They, they just love it. When I was 15, I was in some hot water for something. I don't even remember what. And I was just sick and tired of, you know, having like structure and discipline in the home. Um, I, I was raised in a wonderful home. Um, but I, I announced to my parents at about age 15 that uh, thank you very much. You've done a good job and I will now take it from here. Um, the only thing was I was also expecting to like live at home and be fed and have like all the other <laughs> things handled, right? Have all uh, the benefits of staying at home. <laughs> I wanted all the benefits of staying at home. I just didn't want the parental oversight. Um, kids, young people, young adults like to be able to be involved in the decision-making process. They like to feel empowered. Back at the end of October, uh, you partnered with the team at Abacus Data um, and we won't have time to really dig in. I mean, I know this report is like almost 100 pages, but you you took a look at kids views um, on their role in decision making, like their rights and, and their issues in Canada. Um, you partnering with Abacus Data. Can you can you take us into the idea of this? Well, we really wanted to take a glimpse into um, the lives of children to understand from their perspective, you know, their knowledge of their rights and the extent to which they're involved in decisions that affect their lives. The kids have a right to participate. Um, they have a whole range of rights uh, that are necessary for their survival and development. Um, it's been nearly 30 years since Canada ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and yet we know that the vast majority of kids don't know their rights. And so we did a poll, and only half of kids in Canada knew that they had rights, and uh, three quarters didn't know what to do if their rights were violated. 
again, as a parent, that's alarming to think about. If our kids experience um, violations like abuse and other um, serious grave violations of the rights, they simply don't know what to do about it, where to get help and who to speak to. But the good news that came out of the study was that the, the vast majority of children feel like they're involved in decisions that affect their lives within their families. So congrats, parents, you're doing a great job of involving kids at, you know, at, at within your homes, uh, whether it's decisions like, um, you know, simple things like meals. You know, kids want to have some sense of control over their lives. It doesn't mean that they take control, but we involve them in decisions and it gives them a sense of independence and building of critical skills that they need um, as they mature. Um, but, you know, one of the critical ways that kids were involved this past year was involvement in the decision of how to return to school. It was one of the biggest decisions that kids and parents had to make. And the vast majority of kids were involved in that decision around whether to return to in-person learning, virtual learning, or combination. And the kids that were involved in those decisions felt a much greater sense of satisfaction with what was happening in their school environment, a greater sense of control. And the kids, you know, the, the small minority of kids who were not involved in that decision uh, were much more likely to face this, um, a sense of hopelessness and despair and frustration with their school environment. So, you know, it's not rocket science. When we involve kids in decisions that affect them, they're much more likely to feel more positive about the outcome and, uh, and more hopeful for the future, which we know is a critical um, sense of that, you know, kids need to have a sense of hope. When our kids give up hope, you know, we're really in a tough spot for them. And, uh, you know, so this, it, when it comes back to your question about what can we as, as parents, as citizens do for our kids, you know, at a very basic level, involving them in your family decisions is one critical way to give them a sense of hope and a sense of um, possibility that things are going to get better for them. Yeah. I, d I just dropped into our live chat. Um you know, Shalane says, I mean, here's another what Shalane says. I just read an article about how lack of swimming lessons could impact child drownings. I mean, like, that's just like one kind of niche stat, but that's not an irrelevant stat. Right. I mean, for a family that experiences that horrific reality, you know, Heidi says my partner's an elementary phys ed teacher. And he said it's alarming how winded kids are this year. Uh, from activity as compared to previous years. I mean, parents are chiming. I mean, just these are. I mean, I could just go through and read and read and all these comments from engaged parents. Um, this is an important conversation to say the very least. Um, we talk about, you know, we, we just say kids in Canada. We're talking about mental health or or if we're talking about nutritional issues or kids living in poverty. There are children in marginalized communities. There are, there are children living in rural areas. There are, there are so many different angles through which we could see this. I would imagine that many of the impacts of this are being felt more acutely or more strongly with kids that are living in marginalized communities, kids that are, are living uh, potentially uh, in government care, kids that are experiencing poverty already. Is that something that you're taking a specific look at? Absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right, Ryan, that um, issues of inequity have um, have really, we, we know that they existed pre you know, prior to the pandemic, but have been even more heightened um, as a result of the lockdown measures. So whether um, children are Black or Indigenous or other um, children of colour, they are much more likely to experience adversity, whether it's growing up in poverty, experiencing abuse, having threats to their mental health. Um, affecting, experiencing food insecurity in their homes. Uh, you know, think about the very simple thing around the closures of schools and um, the closure, not only when schools closed, not, the kids weren't just cut off from education, they were cut off from breakfast and lunch programs that many kids depend on. And, 
in, in lots of situations, uh, the, the breakfast and lunch programs at schools are the only healthy meal that kids have during uh, the day, and they depend on that. And so when they were cut off from that, many kids were put in very grave danger. Uh, you know, there's been a sharp increase in the number of kids who have experienced abuse, particularly infants, um, which is, again, deeply disturbing. Uh, but it's a sign that parents are at their wit's end and uh, are just simply not able to cope. Um, so, of course, yes, children who are First Nations, Métis, Inuit, uh, Black, and other children of colour have experienced um, these threats in a much more serious way. Um, and so they need extra support. They, uh, again, they need additional resources to be able to overcome this adversity because we know that kids who experience adversity in the early years are much more likely to have uh, impacts to their physical and mental health that, uh, that suffer, you know, they experience over their lifetime. They're, they're more likely to experience addictions and mental health concerns well into their adulthood. Yeah. Linda, I mean, has such a great observation. She's watching right now. She says, we know that stress in parents' lives can lead to less optimal parenting. So, you know, where do we start? Healthy, financially secure parents can often provide kids with more interactive, positive parenting with so many people experiencing financial insecurity, which is a huge stressor. How do we help parents help their kids to cope with stress? That's a great question. It absolutely is. I mean, we all know the expression, it takes a village to raise, it takes a village to raise a child. But in you know, my view, it takes a nation to raise a nation. Uh, kids require the support of their parents. That is you know, where kids uh, should be surviving and thriving. But parents need support. Uh, they need that support to be able to raise healthy, well children. Uh, they also need good um, policies from our federal and provincial government to be able to provide those supports for, 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 their, for kids and for families. And, you know, one of the very simple things that we can think about during the pandemic is thinking about uh, new parents. You know, anyone who's raised a child knows that those early months, that first year of life is really, really hard. We all rely on our extended family members and friends to bring meals, to visit, to, you know, to take our child when we all need to take a nap. Um, that has all been cut off from new parents in the past year. And so it's not surprising that we've seen a, an increase in infant maltreatment. Uh, there's been a, a significant spike in infant maltreatment around head injuries in particular, uh, shaken baby, baby syndrome, mm. that's, that's what it's known as commonly, uh, but also significant concerns around child neglect, kids not being fed and, and, off, and sometimes being on the brink of starvation. So, so clearly these are signs that parents are really struggling behind closed doors. They're not getting the support that they need. And so, you know, if you know a parent, uh, particularly a parent of a, a new child, it's important that you reach out to check in on them, to offer support. There are some very simple ways that you can do that whether it's, you know, t taking a baby out for a walk in a, in a stroller and keeping your mask on and giving parents a chance to have a break, uh, being able to still drop off meals or have a meal service provided for families, uh, ensuring that uh, just checking in from a mental health perspective. And if you think a parent is struggling to to help connect them to the resources they need to um, to overcome that those challenges, you know. Too many parents are struggling behind closed doors. You know, I'm a parent of a 10-year-old. I can say that it's been really hard, particularly during the lockdown, to care for my child. And we are a two-parent, two-income family. If we're struggling, think about all the families that are living below the poverty line, dealing with addictions and mental health concerns, and how much harder it is for them. So well said. You know, as, as when, when you were talking about... Uh, shaken babies, so to speak, uh, the, the head injuries. Terry was talking about the exact same thing, like as you said it on our live chat. She says she's a medical foster mom. She says we've seen a huge uh, increase in the number of shaken babies admitted to to NICUs, to neonatal ICUs. Uh, she says that we've also we're also experiencing a real shortage of foster parents right now too. Hey, listen, uh, this this type of conversation I know is heavy, and we knew that it would be. I, can I say, Sarah, that I'm so grateful that you and your team are doing the work that you're doing? 
Um, I want to just plant the seed because you and I could talk for three hours. I mean, you're in partnership with StatsCan. You're doing all this stuff. You're doing amazing work and amazing advocacy. So why don't we just remind people uh, that they can check out your website, right? Childrenfirst.org, which is, is, is probably a great place to start. Um, and then I know you're also available on social media and I, and I, and I linked to your, uh, profile, uh, off mine this morning. If people follow me at Twitter at Ryan Jesperson, they'll be able to find you as well, um, to keep this conversation going. I feel like even I, I'm honestly, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being sensational. I feel emotional, um, hearing you talk about this because I see this, I, I see my child's face when we talk about children. Like when you talk about a 10 year old, you see your child's face. When I talk about a five year old, I see my son's face. And I know for so many parents, that's the case. Um, but you don't have to be a parent to care about this either. Um, and so I thank you for this conversation. And I know we're going to talk again. I thank you for putting this on our radar. I feel like people are going to approach this day, the rest of this week, and the rest of their lives with with, with sort of you infuse a certain a passion, right? You, we, we, we ramp up our resolve as a result of these conversations. Well, thank you, Ryan. I just appreciate you um, putting a spotlight on these issues. There simply hasn't been enough discussion about how our kids have been affected. You know, as parents and as uh, members of our community, we know our kids are, have been suffering and yet we haven't had an outlet to be able to talk about it. So thank you for putting a spotlight on these issues. Again, if your listeners want to learn more, you can go to our website, childrenfirstcanada.org to, you know, to read the stats, to uh, get immersed and then to take action to contact your member of parliament or your MLA and speak up for our kids and enable your kids to speak up for yourselves. They deserve it. And we all care desperately for our kids and want to see them survive and thrive. So thank you for this conversation today. You got it. Sarah Austin, the founder and CEO of Children First Canada. We'll talk to you again soon, Sarah. Thanks so very much. What a conversation. Um, Be sure to share this. I know you know there are people that are going to have to hear this. Uh, We make our links as easily shareable as possible. And uh, at least at this point, we have big plans to make it even easier to share our content over the next month or so. But right now you can find it on YouTube. You can, of course, share our podcast. And, and then I tweet out highlights every early afternoon. And, and I know that there are a lot of people that are going to want to ensure that that families or, or, or people in particular are hearing what Sarah was just there to talk about. You can keep the comments coming on our live chat. It's sometimes tough for us to stay on top of it because it moves so quickly. There's amazing. Do I see that there's a book club now? There's a real talk. There's an unsanctioned real talk book club, which wait I wait a minute. Wait a minute. I love wait a minute, it. Wait a minute. Uh, They're reading Obasan. I uh, that flew under my radar because I keep a pretty keen eye on the do. live chat. I saw that you like, had to time somebody out earlier. Uh, I saw yes. that you had to, it Sam with yeah. the Sam with the soft hand of discipline. Just a little time out, not blocked, just timed out. Just but timed out. Yeah. But if I'm if I'm at, and I just dropped in, I just saw it, and then the comment was gone because the the conversation kept going. But it, it appears to me that there's a a real talk. An unofficial Real Talk book club, which I think is incredible. And I love, I love that you're reading Obasan. I absolutely love it. We're going to get to what you have to say here. We'll take a look at the hashtag. And I promised you we're going to spend a meaningful. I'm going to have to like take a swish of water through my mouth and get ready. This is like when I host events and I go up and there's like a 20 minute podium read. I'm going to get into your emails here. I promise you that that's coming up because we haven't seen activity like this in our inbox uh, since I, the eastern slopes kind of coal thing and before that since Aloha Gate. the show, I got 
I've, I've counted 17 emails okay. since we went on air today. <laughs> all right. Like, how are you keeping a track of all of this at the same time? Samuel G. Brooks, the force of nature. The team at Local Waste loves to talk trash. You're going to see it tomorrow when we get to your emails. I don't even know. Trash talk. Is trash talk going to be 25 minutes long tomorrow? I don't think I can. With my blood pressure there, I, th- I don't I think, think I want to be Friday. there with my blood pressure. But at localwaste.ca, you can find more about how they can be a great fit for your business, whether it's a, a big you know, shopping mall or a hotel or a grocery store, whatever it is you're running, or a small ma and pop boutique. They handle your waste management, garbage and recycling, and they love to go head to head against the big guys. Give Chris, Lauren, or Mikel a call. You can find all the details at localwaste.ca. Cleanairclub.ca is where you can have your family breathe easy and save money. They put you on a schedule. You tell them what size furnace filter you need. They deliver them to your door. And when you need more, there they are again. You pay less than you would in store. Plus, you have the confidence that the air in your home coming through those vents is as clean as can be because you're doing your gig via cleanairclub.ca. The team at Westworld Computers wants to make sure that you are up to speed with all of your tech requirements, whether it's an Apple Watch, an iPhone, an iPad, an iMac, a MacBook Pro, or something else. They've got all the gear new and gently pre-owned. Check it out. Here's our setup here. And these, we're not even showing off all the smaller stuff. Like, we've got everything. Westworld Computers is powering this studio. Daryl and his family have owned the business for more than 40 years, and they'd love to see you. You can find them on Mayfield Road. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, the bar none best selection of Ram trucks and the Jeep lineup in the entire province of Alberta. I want you to come test it out. Test drive today what a 2021 Jeep Grand Cherokee L could look like. That's the third row seating, the seven passenger, the Grand Cherokee. Plus, they've got that Grand Wagoneer Jeep bringing it back. This goes up against the, you know, the Benzos and the Beamer X5, the Lincoln Navigator, the Cadillac Escalade. Jeep is back in the luxury SUV game, and you'll find the best selection at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. All right, so... Hang on. <sighs> Morgan writes into the show. After Alberta's draft curriculum for K through six was released, she actually sends this to her MLA. She sends it to the education minister and she CCs talk at ryanjesperson.com. We encourage you to do that in your government correspondence. Morgan says, I'm angry, horrified, and appalled by this racist, regressive, inappropriate, awful curriculum. I'm a graduate of Alberta's education system. I have two young kids in the Calgary Board of Education. I'm sick to the point of nausea about how terrible this will be for my neurodiverse child and my neurotypical child. Morgan knows how to get the government's attention. She says, I used to be a conservative voter, but this is the issue that will push me across the aisle with lawn signs and anything else I can do to stop this. That from Morgan. Amanda says to Premier Jason Kenney and the Honorable Adriana LaGrange, Minister of Education, talk at ryanjesperson.com cc'd. I'm writing today to express my frustration at the newly released draft curriculum to hold back our student success, therefore hold back success and growth of Alberta's future. You represent Albertans and we Albertans are not okay with our kids being taught this. This curriculum needs to be completely scrapped. A new one needs to be drafted. Next time, make sure you include consultation with families, educators, researchers that understand quality pedagogy and curriculum development 
Amanda says, as an educator, I am exhausted with the painful decisions harming us and our students by this government. Chris says, my wife and I have twin seven-year-olds currently in grade two. I'm writing because of our concern and disappointment with proposed curriculum for K-6. Looking at the topics proposed to be taught to children of this age is, quite frankly, ridiculous. Right now, they're just starting to grasp concepts of their immediate community and its history. The proposal to teach the history of Socrates, 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 Plato, Charlemagne, the Black Death, the Magna Carta, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, along with the rise and fall of the Roman Empire at this age is completely baffling. I'm worried that my kids who are currently excited to go to school will become burdened with memorizing facts from history that have no relevance to them at this age. That from Chris. Jody wrote in to say, my mind cannot rest and my heart is sad for Alberta. The draft social studies curriculum terrifies me. I worry about the mental health of kids who will feel othered and won't see themselves in this curriculum and therefore will not want to be in the classroom. It's divisive curriculum. I believe one of its intentions is to push the privileged to more expensive private schools, thereby widening current economic and systematically racist gaps. I believe curriculum will also destroy the love of learning for so many kids. If the content is developmentally inappropriate, kids will become frustrated. They'll have less confidence in their abilities. They'll no longer want to learn. A province of students who despise learning is a province lacking in caring communities, lacking in critical thinkers, lacking in engaged citizens. Whatever happened to a ministerial order around competencies that would encourage problem solving, critical thinking, communication, collaboration. And why are our teachers' voices being ignored? If this government was rewriting medical best practice, wouldn't it want doctors and nurses involved? I mean, no, Jody, but I digress. If the government was reexamining Alberta law, would lawyers not be consulted? I mean, probably not, to be honest. Why does the Alberta government continue to belittle the education profession that from jody catherine wonders premier kenny what is your vision for the future of alberta the kids of today will become the leaders of tomorrow what skills and attitudes do they need to develop so they can not only think for themselves in a democratic society but create new possibilities i love how catherine writes Many of the tenets of your new document would have been outdated when I went to school in the 1950s, says Catherine. The lists to be memorized, the the volume of American content, the white and Eurocentric content all suggest you did not conduct any thorough investigation of modern curricula. Your panel of experts that advised on this need to be furloughed. Admit your mistake. Let real experts do their job so our grandkids will acquire essential skills and concepts they need for survival when they finish school. If they are provided with high quality learning experiences that foster creative thought, encourage problem solving and self-actualization, they will serve Albertans well into the future. Signed, Catherine, an Alberta taxpayer totally embarrassed. Kenny Freudian slip penny writes to Kenny and CC's us I'm writing to express my concern my utter dismay at the Alberta K to six curriculum draft recently released what an embarrassment what a disgrace you've missed the mark 
This is not strengthened curriculum, as you claim. It doesn't solve any problems of the current outdated curriculum. It creates a plethora of new problems, says Penny. After the laughable news release of the ministerial order on August 6th, with Angus McBeath, Dr. Tran Davies, the leaked parts of the draft in the fall, it was hopeful the government would save itself more embarrassment and come through with a somewhat decent workable draft. Penny says, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm an Albertan. She says, I've got 14 years experience teaching grades one through six. Not that you'll care, she says. She says, if you really wanted our input, you would have enlisted the help of the Alberta Teachers Association through the process. As a teacher, I'm horrified at the thought of having to teach this curriculum, especially social studies to my students. There's too much to get through. It's developmentally inappropriate, and it will not promote critical thinking. The biggest concern with the draft is that it is developmentally inappropriate. As a parent, I want my elementary-aged kids to learn about how they interact with their world and know the history of where we live. This draft drips with UCP ideology, the climate change piece, the religion, Mark Kenny, really? He's the best example to highlight big band ensembles giving jazz a larger sound. Penny says, I eagerly await the next draft. Like, do you get, I'm just, I'm not even, there's, there's, there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of these. Catherine, Honorable Minister LaGrange, I'm a parent of two elementary aged kids in the Edmonton public system. I'm writing to share my deep concern about this draft you just unveiled as a supporter of public education. I'm greatly opposed to the addition of such a strong Christian stance. I'm also very confused as to why Canadian content has been removed to include more American history. How can you justify removing the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Finally, the discussion in the sexual education section should be expanded instead of whittled down to reproduction. In 2021, should we not be teaching our children more than just abstinence until marriage? Please do not rush implementing this curriculum. Alberta's parents are trusting you. That from Catherine. I don't know if they're trusting them. Danielle says this is an abomination, outdated, age inappropriate. The fall of the Roman Empire in grade two. Danielle says I taught social studies for 20 years. I trained future teachers at university for a decade. I was embarrassed to read this. Alberta's going back 50 years. This is a waste of tax money. We're not preparing our youth for the future. No educator in their right mind, says Danielle, would look at this and think it's not an April Fool's prank. You're so out of touch, it's scary. This is written to the education minister. Where's the critical thinking? Where's the respect to our indigenous peoples? Why are we going back to memorizing nothing but facts? I don't know what you're so proud of. This should be shredded. I'm embarrassed to be an Albertan under this tyranny. I'm angry. Can you tell? I haven't noted that like half of these are in all caps. Like a lot of, of, of things we've gotten all caps emails on. I'd say it's this Cole and then Cole and Aloha. And Aloha Gate. Yeah. Those, are, those are when people are exercising their caps lock. Mm-hmm. Danielle says, oh, and by the way, I'm donating money every month to the NDP. Denise says, I'm writing with great concern regarding draft curriculum for the outcomes for social studies grade two. First, the amount of content, exhaustive and dense. How is it possible for students to gain more than a superficial understanding of any of these topics? What opportunities for deeper learning will educators have time to provide beyond simply lecturing It seems this has been designed with the intent of filling students with facts 
not leaving room to determine the significance of what has been presented to them. There is no room for skill development or critical thinking. Furthermore, if we are to create lifelong learners, we need to engage them. Kids need to learn about their own communities. Then they can understand information about other communities in relation to theirs. Of what relevance do you believe Genghis Khan is to the average Alberta seven-year-old? My answer would be is they'd probably think that that's the guy that's living with Leonardo and Raphael and Donatello and Michelangelo in the sewers of New York City. That sounds correct. Is that where Ninja Turtles were in New York City? New York City, yeah. yeah. If we consider creating relevance as valuable, this curriculum fails. What about indigenous or francophone perspectives? How will we expect young students to understand global communities when they lack background information of the communities in which they live? Finally, my greatest concern is the lack of consideration around inclusion and developmental appropriateness. This list of outcomes, including but not limited. And keep in mind, Denise is writing about grade two. Marco Polo, Joan of Arc, feudal societies, the siege of Troy, democracy, the Black Plague. This is absurd for students who are seven years old. Current curriculum presents these in junior high and high school because they're complex and they require critical thinking and they're likely beyond the understanding of somebody who's a beginning reader. It's also laughable that teaching about residential schools at this age has been deemed too traumatic. But comparing the Black Plague to COVID-19, the current pandemic that's traumatic for many students living through it has become a recommended study. Denise says, as both a parent and a teacher, I feel like this is appallingly unacceptable. If the aim is to alienate minorities and make social studies boring, inaccessible, and unappealing, it has succeeded. Otherwise, back to the drawing board. That from Denise. I mean, Heather, I'm writing out of Airdrie East to let you know about my significant concerns. This is to the education minister, to the education critic, Sarah Hoffman, opposition leader, Rachel Notley, her MLA, Angela Pitt, who's kind of on the outs with the government right now. Premier Jason Kenney and Real Talk. She says, I have concerns about age and developmentally appropriate content for students. This is going to be impossible for young students to understand in a meaningful way. They'll have no connection to understanding the world they live in. I have concerns about the move away from encouraging discussion, exploration, and inquiry. Amassing knowledge through memorization is ineffective. It's not evidence-based. I have concerns regarding the focus on the Christian religion. I am opposed to teaching Bible passages and parables to students. I will do that on family time. It should not be taught in public school. There are a variety of worldviews and, and an emphasis on Christianity in public schools is disturbing, as is the othering of different perspectives. I also have concerns. There's a lack of acknowledgement of LGBTQ2S plus in younger grades. By the way, it's International uh, Transgender Day of Visibility today. Heather goes on to say, I, I want my child to learn the true history of Canada, which includes learning the rich, diverse culture and societies of people who lived here prior to settlers arriving. I have concerns that recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission have been ignored and that the curriculum does not include meaningful learning about Canada's residential schools and treatings. I am treaties. I am asking, says Heather, that you start this over again. Review the previous government's evidence based curriculum work. And before people are triggered, that would include the PCs too. 
Include educators. Include educators. You know what, Sam? I can't believe how many people are saying uh, online I see, well, at least, hey, the best part about this is it gets rid of the NDP propaganda curriculum. There is no NDP propaganda curriculum. I want to point out to everybody watching, the curriculum rewrite the NDP was working on started... Redford Apprentice, which one started it? Oh, who knows? It's one, well, it depends one of on the what two. you're talking yeah. about, but yeah. it's been going on for years. So there is no NDP cricket. Anyway, I, I just like sometimes we'll infuse some facts into the, you know, just so you can, you know, the guy next door talking over the fence, you can go, actually, actually, that should be a shirt that we do. Actually, I'm asking that you include educators, says Heather, experts. Base curriculum changes on evidence, current best practice. I fear I'm going to need to help my child unlearn much of what is discussed in the classroom so he's able to critically think for himself, to understand diverse perspectives, to understand his place in community, to appreciate collaboration, and to be understanding of people's experiences. That from Heather. I love this one from Tom. Tom writes to his MLA in Lethbridge, Nathan Newdorf. CC's talk at RyanJesperson.com says, uh, MLA Newdorf, I'm very concerned with the new school curriculum that has been designed without the input of teachers. It is clear it should be redesigned. While there are many problems with the proposed curriculum in the areas of science, social, multicultural relations, racism, sex ed, says Tom, the problem I'm most concerned about is the detailed teaching of religion as a subject. The subject matter is treated as a, a belief system that's a viable option, does not reveal that these are stories stealing components from each of their predecessors with the goal of controlling populations for personal enrichment. Religion itself should not be taught in school, says Tom. Teaching about the effects of religion is properly the subject of a fact-based education, how religion attacks and debases women. The gay community, gender fluidity, is used as justification for war and terrorism. This is relevant subject matter, says Tom. Also, how it can lead to charitable works, good deeds, and establish ideals that we can strive for. Tom says that also is fair game. Teaching that Jesus was resurrected is a fantasy based on a mythological book that has no place in a fact-based institution of learning. This is from Tom. He says this is especially highlighted now as Alberta Christians are leading a movement to harm our neighbors and families by ignoring health restrictions during a pandemic. Let me jump in and say not all Christians. Tom says, please remove the harmful inclusion of religious instruction from proposed curriculum. Oh, and please remove the forced learning about the premier's grandfather. I mean, come on. That from Tom. I found an unlikely defender of Mark Kenny. Uh, Emma Graney. Yeah, I saw that. I, I wouldn't say that she's defending she's him. Not but defender, I said she's that. just like, he's a more significant jazz musician than you'd think he is. Yeah. I think that was sort of her perspective and it made sure. a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah, she, he, he was big in the 30s and 40s um, as a big band leader. It's, it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's almost like I don't, the more time that people spend talking about Mart Kenny, mm -hmm. the more time that supporters of the premier and this government will say, you're, you're, you're obsessing over a tiny little detail. This is not relevant. We can justify Mark Kenny being included in the history of 1930s and 40s big band influence on jazz. Fine. Sure. But like, where's there are a thousand like other Oscar names Peterson that should be on the list. You know, it like it, it's just it reeks. Yeah, it reeks. And it's not surprising. It's comical and it's typical 
I mean, that's really I'm not going to become obsessed over the Mark Kenny thing. I just to me, that is just when you find out that like. I mean, it just it connect the lines, connect the dots, right? The government's giving out a sole source contract for this, and it's this minister's wife. The government's handing out a sole source contract to a law firm to look into this, and it's the justice minister's, former justice minister's, former firm. The government's handing out jobs at the war room that can't be foibed, and it just happens to be the guy, you know, the CEO of the war room that ran in the riding, trying to beat Joe Cece, but lost to him. And so, yeah, like, there's always something. There is always something so of course jason kenny's grandpa is included in the curriculum of course he is let's not get let, let, let's just allow those to be the oh yeahs at the end allow that to be the exclamation mark at the end of your letter like so many of you have done here and keep your eyes on the prize and stay focused and we promise you that editorially we will do the same thing the teams at Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that after 8 p.m. every night of the week, you can treat yourself and somebody else for just five bucks to a combo, however you choose it, of a Sunday or a medium dipped cone. That's just five bucks at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And, and Michael and Mark, who own those and who employ so many young people in this area, uh, they let us know how much they love when you're heading through the drive through or you leave a note on your delivery app and you say, I'm a real talker. I heard about you on Real Talk. They love it. And we love their partnership. The team at Eden Landscaping has their teams ready to build. I mean, they design all year round projects to help you transform your outdoor living space. And now they're ready to get going on actually getting that done. If you want to get in the mix and make sure that you enjoy this summer to the fullest, whether it's a new outdoor cook station, a swim spa, maybe you fix that retaining wall. You got those beautiful intricate fit stone patios. You know the ones I'm talking about. The ones where you look in the magazine and you go, can you imagine that in our backyard? Make it happen. LandscapeEdmonton.ca is where you'll find Eden Landscaping. They've been doing it for more than 20 years. The team at Kubi Energy provides our positive reflections every Monday with their sponsorship of that great that great segment where we start the week off on the right foot, where we where we show you what's inspiring people, what's mobilizing people, what's encouraging people. The team at Kubi is in the solar game, industrial, commercial and residential in BC and Alberta. They're Tesla certified and they love to work with you, whether your project is relatively small or huge. Like the Edmonton Convention Center, for example, they can customize it to make it work. Plus, they handle all the paperwork at kubienergy.ca. The team at McBain Camera, super excited about the Nikon Z50 camera. This is the one with the 4K Ultra HD 1080p slow motion, time-lapse mode, and that self-portrait mode with the flip-down LCD screen. When you order a Nikon Z50 body right now at mcbainecamera.com, make sure you enter the code, one word, REALTALK, and for free, they're going to hook you up with a ProMaster Hitchhiker Tabletop Tripod. You can also go see their teams in-store, six convenient Alberta locations. McBain Camera has been serving Alberta photographers for years and years, like since 1949. Absolutely fantastic, and we're proud to partner with them. The team at Alta Moving and Storage knows this is the time of year that you're going to consider making your move. 
So why not do it with them? They're proud partners of Real Talk and they operate local, which means they customize exactly what you need with their pod style moving containers. You don't want to be rushed. You don't want to be stressed. You don't want to be on somebody else's clock. Alta Moving and Storage has you covered. You can find them online, altastorage.ca or under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com and make sure you tell them you heard about them on Real Talk. Now, tomorrow's going to be a great show. We're, we're bringing back, you remember when Gossia Gasparovitz came on the show and she took her mathematical modeling and applied it to this new COVID variant? Well, we're going to update as these variant cases continue to rise, and we're going to pair her up with Dr. Lenora Saxinger, who's an infectious diseases doctor. We know that not all public health, not all medicine is mathematical so we think it'll be a great one-two punch and a reminder on friday our show will feature for our real talk roundtable starting at nine o'clock the winners of the 3mt the three minute thesis competition from the university of alberta's faculty of graduate studies big week to come more to announce tomorrow we'll talk to you then at 8 30 mountain time